from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 17th. Today, how Republicans rode a wave of COVID cases to victory, the CDC's latest on why masks work, and Africa's overlooked success. After the election, what did you see happening across the country? It was interesting because you had this election where, at the top of the ticket, of course, Joe Biden won. He won on a platform of doing the responsible thing on COVID, of following the science. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. But if you look at what happened in the states where COVID is growing fastest right now, which is across the Midwest, across the Great Plains, there were a lot of Republicans who did very, very well down ballot. Let's talk about the Republicans. They have a trifecta of power here in Iowa. Now the Democrats, they had a chance to flip the state house, but they failed to do so. Governor's races and legislative races. A tight races were few and far between in North Dakota election circles. This is one of the strongest Republican turnouts in the state Senate in years. The election came as a win for the South Dakota Republican Party, increasing their majority in both the state house and Senate. You had Republicans really gaining ground. There is no doubt which party came out on top here in Montana on Tuesday. And defeating Democrats who had hoped to make gains in this election. Then they ended up losing seats that I think even Republicans didn't really think they had a shot at gaining. And they ran on a very different platform, which is one, in many cases, of doing much less to try to limit the spread of the virus and prioritizing keeping businesses open, even if that means that COVID spreads faster and further. So can you give me an example of one of the places where we saw that dynamic play out? Well, you saw it very clearly in Wisconsin. And of course, Wisconsin was a state that Joe Biden won, although very narrowly. And COVID was raging in Wisconsin at the time of this election. You had a situation in Wisconsin where the governor is a Democrat, Tony Evers, who has repeatedly over the course of this year pushed for restrictions that are intended to try to get a hold of the COVID pandemic, trying to limit business activity, instituting a mask mandate. And you have a legislature that is dominated by Republicans that has repeatedly tried to obstruct what he's uh, sought to do. They've gone to court and said that what he's doing is not according to the state constitution. They filed lawsuits. And the Democrats in Wisconsin were really hoping that this message of theirs that the state should be following the science, that the state should be doing what public health authorities advise them to do, that that would be something that voters would reward them for on election day. But in reality, something different happened in Wisconsin down ballot on election day, which is the Republicans did quite well. They won a couple of state Senate seats that they had not held before. And a lot of the aspirations that Democrats had of really making up ground in a legislature that's been dominated by Republicans for a decade, they just didn't come to pass. 
And tell me about some of these candidates who ran in this past election thinking that running on COVID as a voice for uh, more responsibility around COVID and better reaction to the pandemic, that that would work for them. So I spoke to a candidate for the state assembly in Wisconsin by the name of Kristen Lyerly. And she is a 50-year-old physician. She has a degree in public health. And she had never run for office before. So in my district, and in Wisconsin as a whole, but primarily up in the Green Bay, we have seen twice now that we've been the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. She decided this spring that she was going to run for the assembly because she saw that the current assembly, one dominated by Republicans, was trying to block what Governor Evers was trying to do to try to get control of the pandemic. We are that place where masking is political and uh, people are very divided about some of the precautions about whether the pandemic is real. And because of that, our hospitals are full, our healthcare workers are exhausted, and we are suffering as a community in just very tragic ways. She ran really on this platform of doing the responsible thing on COVID. Early on in the campaign, we didn't do any door knocking at all. And she was very cautious with her campaign. She didn't have big rallies. When she went door to door, she did so. With a mask on and hand sanitizer and stand at least six feet back and never go into anyone's house. Her opponent, who is a Republican, has a Facebook page where you can see lots of pictures of him out on the campaign trail without a mask, shaking hands, doing the usual campaign thing. And Kristen Lyerly told me that when she was talking with people, she said that they wanted the legislature to do the responsible thing. They wanted to get a hold of this pandemic. I was feeling very hopeful. We had polling data that showed that we were doing well. We were at least neck and neck. Biden was polling 11 points ahead in Wisconsin. So yeah, going into it, I really truly felt that we had a fighting chance. But when the votes were counted, uh, she lost. She lost that seat in Northeastern Wisconsin. And not only did she lose, but the state Senate seat, which had been occupied by a Democrat, flipped over to the Republican side. And where else did we see this play out where you had places that have been very intensely affected by COVID and yet responded to that by voting for more Republicans? So you certainly saw it in uh, Montana, which is a state that has really been hammered by COVID in the last several weeks. It's a state that has a Democratic governor currently, and he had put in place a mask mandate back in July. And the two candidates running to succeed him had very different views about the mask mandate. The Democrat wanted to keep it in place and actually wanted to toughen it up. And the Republican was very critical of the mask mandate. He said the economy has to be the priority. He was out campaigning, hugging people who didn't have masks on, and he won. He won that election. Uh, You saw it as well in the Dakotas, certainly, where in both Dakotas, there was a strong vote for the Republicans in the legislature. The governor in North Dakota was reelected by an enormous margin, despite the fact that North Dakota has had for weeks the fastest growing COVID rate in the country. And there was actually a state legislative candidate in North Dakota 
who died of COVID, a Republican who died of COVID several weeks before the election. And he won election anyway, in spite of the fact that he had died of the disease and in spite of the fact that his party had been out there preaching that this was a disease that the country didn't need to shut down over and people should be allowed to make up their own minds about whether they wear masks. So then what could explain that? If you have these places that are seeing really high rates of COVID, people being hospitalized, people dying, I mean, that's that's people's family and friends. Like, why isn't that translating into a sense that there is something that needs to reflect that in terms of who is representing them in government? Well, I think there is a question of, of cause and effect here. I, I think that you know, one reason that the virus is raging out of control in so many areas where there are a lot of supporters of President Trump, a lot of Republican voters, is that there is a strong suspicion of public health authorities and of the guidance that they've given. So I think that these are areas where you're going to naturally see COVID spike in these places as a consequence. But I think that also I talked with Democrats in Wisconsin who told me that they don't regret doing the responsible thing on COVID. They don't regret uh, preaching a message of responsibility. But they do say that they may have underestimated the degree to which voters were perhaps so exhausted by all of the restrictions, all of the precautions that people have been taking since the spring. And when President Trump and other Republicans were out there saying, we can open up, we can just do this if we ignore the virus and we pretend it's not there. Perhaps Democrats underestimated just how strong that appeal was and may have underestimated just how much they needed to do to rebut that argument, to to say, in essence, we can't have our economy back until we get control of the virus. So seeing these results, what does that mean for Republicans in power in terms of how they're going to continue to respond to the pandemic? Well, I think it means that for them, there doesn't seem to be a penalty to not follow scientific advice. You had the governor of Iowa, a Republican, very recently say these election results really validate what Republicans have been saying about COVID. I I think the election reflects that Iowans somewhat agree with how we have handled uh, not only COVID-19, but conservative conservative fiscally uh, responsible decisions that have been made. We don't need to shut down the economy, that we don't need to have a mask mandate, we don't need to stay at home. Iowans said in this election, they want to get through it. They want to figure out a way to move on. They they, you know, agree with how we've handled COVID-19. In Iowa, the COVID infection rates tell a different story. The disease is raging out of control in Iowa and hospitals are filling up and the state's public health infrastructure is really, really straining under the burden created by COVID. But you have a lot of Republicans who are essentially saying we did well in this election, and so we have no reason to change our position. Now, the the one thing I would say that runs counter to that is that there are Republicans out there who are finding out that there's really no choice at this point. The governor of North Dakota had resisted a statewide mandate for months and said, we don't need it. We can let people make their own decisions. 
Well, the hospitals in North Dakota are in dire straits. And on Friday, he reversed himself and very suddenly instituted a statewide mask mandate. Hmm. Governors in Iowa and Nebraska have had to do similar things and, and make similar concessions. So at some point, reality does creep in. Over the last few weeks, Iowa has experienced a significant increase in COVID-19 cases, and we're not alone. Here in Iowa, during the month of October, we reported more than 41,000 new cases of COVID-19. And as the weather changes and more of our activities move indoors, I'm asking you to take additional precautions and carefully consider whether certain... And I'm curious, what ended up happening to... Kristen, the, the Democrat in Wisconsin, what did she do after she lost that race? Well, she went back to practicing medicine, which was the thing that got her into politics in the first place, was working with her patients, uh, many of whom had been affected by COVID and many of whom were still being affected by COVID. I am badly needed here in my community as a physician. So I'm grateful to be back. But she says she's very, very concerned about what's going to happen in the weeks ahead. I don't think that they believe that COVID is real. I don't think that they believe it's worse than influenza. I think that many people feel that we're all going to get it, so let's just get it now. I don't think that they see the impact on healthcare workers. So I think for many people, it still is just a story and a story that they don't believe. Kristen Lyerly is a former Democratic candidate for Wisconsin State Assembly. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. Masks, masks, masks. That's health reporter Lena Sun. She's been reporting on one of the simplest protections we have against COVID, masks. The CDC says you should wear them, and there's new evidence supporting why. For the longest time, when CDC first put out its guidance on masks, they said that the main protection was for others, your grandma, your immunocompromised aunt, other folks. But because the evidence on this is changing, science is changing, CDC now has enough evidence to show that actually it protects you, the wearer, as well as other people. So when you say that it protects you, the wearer, that basically before the idea was that if you were wearing a mask, at least you're keeping all your germs to yourself. Like it doesn't prevent you from inhaling something bad, but that at least it prevents you from spreading coronavirus to other people. But now they're saying that you could actually be protected from inhaling the virus by wearing a mask. Correct. It has to do with the kind of evidence that you need to be able to put forward this kind of guidance. The CDC requires fairly strict epidemiological evidence, lab evidence, all kinds of evidence for them to feel comfortable saying this. But if everybody wore a mask, then the whole group protection goes up and everybody gets protected. Well, I think that part of it is that there has been this, like, yo-yoing messaging about masks. And it just feels like the message has changed and evolved so many times just over the past eight months. 
You know why? That's because this virus was not known to us before this year. And now it is the reason why it is now the third highest cause of death in the United States. So just think about that. Every two seconds, we get another case. Every minute, we get another death. And the tragedy of this is that public health messaging on this was muddled because of political ramifications. When CDC first came out with guidance on masks, it took several weeks before the White House allowed them to put it out. At the same time, there was concern about a shortage of the kinds of masks that healthcare workers need to protect themselves. Those are the people who need it the most. And those masks, the N95s, were in short supply. So the CDC and others were criticized for conflating the effectiveness of masks with the shortage situation. It did not help that when this was announced, President Trump came out and said, you know what, we're going to put out this guidance, but you know what, I'm not going to wear one. So from the get-go, you had a mixed message. And then at the same time, there wasn't as much strong evidence about how it protected people. The evidence has evolved, and the messaging on that has also evolved, but not in as forthright and in public a way as it should. Every time there was a change, there should have been strong messaging. This scientific bulletin was posted to the CDC website last week, but there was no briefing. Hmm. There were no press releases because they weren't allowed to do it. Because the situation has gotten so political. Yeah. So when it comes to this new guidance from the CDC that, yes, it is important to wear a mask because it could actually help you as the mask wearer, how exactly does that work? Like, is this providing all the protections that an N95 mask has where if you wear it, you know, you can feel pretty confident that nothing dangerous is getting through? Or how much do we know about what protections it does provide to you? Well, so this is the tricky part, right? You know, in order for the CDC to say that there is some protection to the wearer. The variables we don't know are, how are you wearing your mask, Martine? Are you pulling it over your nose and over your chin? Maybe not. Maybe you're walking around with that thing flapping. So that's not going to be protection for you. There are different kinds of masks and information now. I think the CDC has updated theirs to show the more layers you have. And if you could have like an electrostatic layer, it gives you more protection. I think the idea is that when you have a mask on, there is air that comes in around the side. And, you know, now that we know that coronavirus, one way it gets transmitted is not only in close distance respiratory droplets, but through tinier aerosolized particles that can travel farther distances. They haven't been able to really measure this in experiments because when they do experiments, a lot of it is they put a mask on like a mannequin and they blow or they do things. So it doesn't really imitate how it works in real life when you got that thing on your face. So... We have gotten so excited about this very encouraging news about one and and potentially two, maybe eventually several uh, vaccines that are looking to be very effective in preventing people from getting sick from COVID. But in some ways, I wonder if that is kind of a red herring because many Americans are still not going to be able to get the vaccine in the next few months. And that really the best and most immediate way of keeping yourself and your family safe is by actually wearing a mask. Yes. 
The vaccine news is definitely great news, and it's really important for us to have that kind of light at the end of the tunnel. What we don't know yet is there are many questions around the vaccine data, which will be coming out in the next couple of weeks as they apply for federal regulatory approval. But we don't know, for example, if the vaccine will prevent you, an infectious person, from spreading the virus, right? It might stop you from getting really sick or making sure you don't have severe illness, but you could still spread the virus. Up to 40% of people who spread the virus don't have symptoms. So there are all these questions we don't know, and the bottom line brings me to this. Vaccines are not a silver bullet. And even when people start getting vaccinated, it is important for people to do the other things that we have all been stressing. Wear a mask, keep apart. At some point, this pandemic will be over and we won't need to wear a mask, but we are not there yet. Lena Sun is a national health reporter for The Post. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, one more thing from Global Opinions Editor Karen Atia. For a good part of this year, there were so many predictions about COVID and how it would ravage the African continent, how the Western world should in kind of some ways be prepared and on guard for the continent to just fall into the abyss because, you know, COVID would ravage a a continent that was already struggling with poverty and mismanagement and all of that. And I just realized that there were so few stories and and essays and curiosity, really, about a number of African countries that have handled the coronavirus pretty well. It was just six years ago that Liberia lost nearly 5,000 people to Ebola. So... Very early on, Liberia began screening for COVID-19 at airports, you know, realizing that the virus was being brought in by travelers. So travelers coming in from countries with 200 cases or more uh, were quarantined. And so that's just like an example of very, very early and frankly, you know, a bit aggressive measures to help prevent the virus from coming in via travel. So it was just really disheartening to see just a slew of headlines that basically there was one that the BBC had that asked, you know, is is can Africa's low death rate be explained by poverty? And that was soundly stomped upon by by Africans. Um, The New York Post also had an article, scientists can't explain the puzzling lack of coronavirus outbreaks in Africa. 
I don't want to give the impression that all has been perfect, right? So like in Kenya, for instance, there was uh, reports of the Kenyan police aggressively enforcing quarantine measures and killing as, as many as 15 people while trying to enforce curfew restrictions. And yes, there has been issues with misinformation, distrust, hoaxes that have been spreading online in, in many countries. But I think that it's important for us to consider, you know, while there was so much praise for countries like New Zealand and Australia, and you rarely heard about Senegal, you rarely heard about Liberia, you rarely heard about countries in which the governments instituted early airport lockdowns, contact tracing like uh, Senegal. And in a number of these countries, the, the rates and the death tolls have been extraordinarily low. Africa didn't meet the expectation that it was supposed to collapse. Again, it's to also just tell the story of the good that's happening and to encourage just more curiosity. Karen Atia is the Global Opinions Editor for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you find value in the show and want to help us out, leave us a review on your podcast app. Reviews help other people find our show, and we read them all. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 